In case you're wondering, um, I am not Nate, and so your eyes are not deceiving you. Um, my, if we have, I think I've met almost everybody here, if not everybody. Um, my name's Chris, and I'm one of the elders here, and I'm uh, privileged to be able to stand in for Nate um, this morning. And we've been talking a lot over the last few weeks, and Nate has been talking about um, reading the Word and really getting into um, praying the Word and understanding the Word. And please do not make that more complicated than it is, okay? We can often um, appear sometimes seem to overcomplicate things or make things hard because we do word studies, right? We may look at some Greek words and even share them with you um, because the, the Greek language can be sometimes a little more expressive um, than, in, than the English translation, so, which is why we do that. That's, none of that's required to read and understand Scripture. None of that's required to just sit and spend time you know, with the Word. But what is important is to try and get an overall understanding of what you're reading. Right? Um, I'm in the same boat you are a lot of times. Is I'll sit and I'll, I'll sit down for my daily reading, or sometimes my weekly reading if I'm not doing well, um, and I'll read a verse, and I'll read another verse, and I'm just reading a verse at a time, and I'm thinking about that verse, and I'm not thinking about the greater context. Right? That's a little harder sometimes to kind of remember where you've been reading and, and picture where you're at now and how it all kind of ties together. It's easier in um, the narratives in the Old Testament um, because that's, they're historical stories, right? Um, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Kings, Chronicles, right? Those are easier to read and, and sometimes understand because they're, they're a story. It's like reading a novel in a sense. And, but we get a little tied up with um, Paul's letters uh, sometimes. We're going to talk about Romans uh, chapter 12, verses 9 and 10 this morning, but I want to kind of put it in context because I think that's important. Um, as you start off reading Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, which, by the way, is my favorite verses um, in Scripture, it talks about just the simple fact that by Christ's sacrifice, you are different than you were. Right? That's it. You accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. You are not going to be the same person you were before. He goes on then to say that in verse 3, salvation then is the great equalizer. Right? We are all changed, and we all changed into something equal. Men and women, young or old, slave or free, Paul says in, in another verse, we are all the same in Christ Jesus. Once we have accepted Jesus Christ, we are equal. And then he goes on with verse 4 through 8, and he says, okay, now you have been transformed. You are all brothers and sisters, equal in Christ. You have certain talents and gifts you, I have given you when I've knitted to get you together in the womb. I want you to use them to serve each other, right? to serve the body of Christ. And so when he gets to verses 9 and 10, it says, Love then must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Or to paraphrase, 
Selfless love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Now, again, this is we're going to get into uh, nuances that I don't want you to th- want to throw you off from reading and understanding for yourself, because I think it's important to bring the distinction um, between selfless love, which in okay, I'm going to say a Greek word. I'm sorry, agape, to then brotherly love, phileo, right, which have different things and different implications. And I think it's important to what Paul is trying to say here. Um, and I've, if I've told you this story before, I apologize, but it, it won't take long. So um, when Margaret and I met, I, and I love telling the story about how it, so does she. So I'm not telling anything I shouldn't. Um, we love telling the story about when we met because we were on, um, a double date with each of us with somebody else. If that's not, it gets weirder, okay? So we, um, this double date, she's dating my best friend. I have a girl at the time, and we go to this pizza place, a showbiz place. I don't, I don't think there are any around here. But, um, and we're just, we're having a great time, and we just happen to be sitting across from each other, and we can't stop looking at each other. We're just kind of staring. And I, I never asked my friend if he noticed, right, that I was sitting there staring at his date, or my girlfriend didn't say anything, and I presume she would have. Um, but it was just kind of this instant connection, okay? Um, so I do believe at first sight. I do believe that can happen. And if we had never met, or I'm sorry, if we had never moved, when we had met, if we had never moved past that kind of starry-eyed feeling of love, that first initial crash of reaction of emotion, um, then we would have um, crashed and burned like every other couple that had gotten married right after, right out of high school. There were, I want to say, three uh, other couples of, in our circle of friends that got married right after high school. They all got divorced within two years, unfortunately. And... I, part of the reason for that, other than we, I mean, we were blessed by God, and, and I give him all the credit, but one of the things that we, lear- that we learned early on is that love is not just that feeling, right? Feelings can change, not change, can wear off, right? That initial surge of endorphins, of adrenaline, right? When you first meet somebody and you're excited and you're learning, right? And everything's new. It's exciting fun. You're discovering each other. And there's a lot of, there's just a lot of mystery and a lot of uh, uh, fun that goes along with that. Um, But it, that does not last, right? Like a little kid with a new toy, initially you play with it every single day and all the time and it's the best thing, exciting new thing. And then after a while, right, it goes into the pile um, of all the other toys, right? Because the newness has worn off. And I think it's very easy to get caught up in a relationship and be excited by the newness, right? The mystery and lose sight of the long term. And the long term is that love is not just a feeling, right? Love requires action. 
And so this morning's message is that love is a verb. Now, for those of you who have taught high school or grade school or whatever, do not, I know the difference between a noun and a verb, okay? Please don't get on me about that. But I think you'll see in, in a lot of ways, it is a verb in that it requires action. It requires movement. It describes something that is tangible in our behavior. So love is not a feeling. Love requires action, and so love is a verb, at least this morning. So let's talk about selfless love, right? That's where Paul starts off. Love must be sincere. Um, what is sincerity? I mean, what is it to be sincere? What is it to have real meaning behind what we're saying, real commitment, if you will, behind what we're saying? Uh, another translation that I found that I thought was really good for that verse is, love must be without hypocrisy. Wow, that kind of changes things up a little bit, right? Sincerity, yes, I'd say I love you and I, and I mean it. You know, I really do love you. But am I being hypocritical about it? If I'm... The, um, there was a quote of, uh, from Walf, Ralph Waldo Emerson that says, what you do speaks so loudly that I cannot hear what you say. And we can talk all day about love and about how we love somebody, but if you tell your significant other that you love them, and then you daydream about being with someone else, that's hypocrisy. If you tell someone that you've been praying for them when you haven't, because you said you would, but you, now you're embarrassed that you didn't, that's hypocrisy. Not that you didn't pray for them, but you're telling them that you did, right, to maintain that, that face, if you will. If you tolerate somebody, right, I have, a, I have an unusual personality. I have a sense of humor that doesn't always fit all situations. I, I understand that. Um, some of you maybe don't care for my sense of humor, and that's okay. But to say um, to you do, right, to put on a face that, well, everything's okay, ha, ha, you're, just, you're wonderful, I love your brother. That's hypocrisy, okay? So we have to understand that there is no difference between thoughts and actions. In the biblical mindset, when God talks about thoughts, when God talks about actions, there is no distinction. There is nothing disconnected between this and this and this, right? Mind, heart and actions are all tied together, all through Scripture, right? There's no distinction between them. We cannot be hypocritical. And if you're in a relationship with somebody whose love and attitude towards love is hypocritical, um, they will use you up, right? So love, selfless love serves. Selfless love looks for, or selfless, sorry. Selfless love serves. Selfless love looks for opportunities to give to somebody else. Selfless love looks for the other person's needs and tries to meet them without concern for their own. Right? That's selfless love. And you can give selfless love to somebody who is selfish, somebody who is hypocritical, and it will use you up. Right? It is, you can't go into a relationship expecting back 
but you still have needs, right? You still have things that need to be emotionally met. And when that just continues on and never gets met, it becomes very um, draining. And while love is self-sacrificing, love is not self-destructive either, right? Thinking of another person's need first is not sacrificing who you are and what you need. It's not ignoring the fact that we each have um, needs. It is looking after that other person's needs first, and hopefully they are, they're doing the same thing. Selfless love. Um, Paul goes on to say, hate what is evil, but cling to what is good. Um, what is evil, right? We've kind of watered down in popular culture the concept of evil. Um, we, um, it's very clear, though, in God's Word that evil is disobedience to God's command without resulting in repentance. Right? We all disobey, right? We're all sinners. We all make mistakes, and we repent. And because of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ, we're okay. That's all right. God forgives us. It's gone. It's done. It's over with. But to continually sin, or to sin in many different ways without repentance, that is evil. Right? Anything that is opposed or opposite or not part of, anything that's not part of God, doesn't have to even be opposed to God, anything that's not part of God and his kingdom is evil. It's, it's that clear cut to him. So, another translation where it says, hate what is evil, it says, do you, it says, abhor what is evil. Abhor what is evil. That's not a word that we hear very often. In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We don't think, about, we don't think like the world anymore. We don't expect things like the world anymore. We don't look at things like the world anymore, like we used to. If we are of God, we look at things completely differently. Because evil and love cannot coexist in the same place. Right? God loves us. We love God. We cannot then be evil. Right? If we are, if we're acting in complete disobedience, then we don't love God. Right? It's just that simple. The two cannot exist together. First Peter, First Peter two two says, "Now that you have been purified, your, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you now have sincere love for one another, love one another deeply and from the heart." Right? Two things that we've already talked about. Right? That love is truth. Being, and truth, true love is sincere, right? True love is sincere. Love cannot be, be, cannot be sincere, if I can talk this morning. Love cannot be sincere if it's not true, if there's not truth at its, at its very foundation. We have 
when we talk about evil and truth, um, you, you almost you can't ignore the idea of um, what's called the antihero in popular culture. It um, it's been around forever. In uh, the concept has been around forever in literature. In America, it kind of got in popularity in the 40s and 50s um, with the beaten um, and writers like Jack Kerouac, right? Um, the the living in, in opposition to the standard, right? Um, moving into the 60s, right? The rebellion culture and trying to throw off um, societal norms, if you will. Um, and in the 70s, right, it was more of an expression through, um, actually one of my favorites was um, Clint Eastwood in the Spaghetti Western movies, right? Movies like um, Fistful of Daughter, Dollar, A Few Dollars More, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, right? He played this same character, the man without a name, right? This morally ambiguous person that came in to town and was, uh, ended up helping, right? Doing good, right? But they weren't good, right? That's why they're called an anti-hero. It's somebody who is not a hero, somebody who does not portray the characteristics of a hero, right? Truth, justice, um, integrity, all of those things. But they, it's just the opposite, right? They're killers, they're murderers, they're um, vagabonds, scoundrels, right? Whatever you want to, whatever kind of term you want to use, but then they end up doing something good, right? They become a hero while still being morally ambiguous, right? Or evil in our context. Um, and it is, um, it's kind of given rise to a confusion, if you will, that, well, I don't have to be moral, I don't have to be good, and still do good things. Right? That's the kind of the lesson from the anti-hero, is that I can do good on my own without meeting these other standards of society and of God. Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15 say, Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without, for, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Um, that hasn't changed. Right? Paul's talking about his generation. Be, he could still be talking about ours. A warped and crooked generation. Um, and we are the bastions of truth and love in that crooked generation, in this crooked generation. And we have to understand, though, that love will always win over evil. Love will always win over evil. Love has already won over evil in the form of Jesus Christ when he gave his life for our sins. Right then, love conquered evil. Even in our lives, love will conquer evil. Um, Romans 3.21 says, Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good, right? That's the way to fight evil. That's the only way to fight evil is by doing good and by loving. So we are to give ourselves in selfless love. We are to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Hold on to what is good. Cling to it as if it is for our very lives. Be devoted, next is, be devoted to one another in love, in brotherly love, 
honor one another above yourselves. So this is where I think there's, there's an important distinction when he turns from the idea of selfless love to brotherly love. I think there's a reason for that. We are a family, right? We are the family of God. We can't always, the saying, as the saying goes, we can't always choose our family, right? We're born into it. We have what we have. Same goes with this family, right? We can try and choose by going to this church or that church or the next church or the next church or the next church, right? Whenever you're going to find a perfect church, whenever you're going to find the perfect family, right? Outside of the Brady Bunch. And they're not real, okay? Promise. They're not real. Um, there is no perfect family. Families are not per- My family is not perfect. Your family is not perfect. This family is not perfect. But we are family anyway. And we are to honor other members of this family. Right? What is honor? Go ahead and pull up the first slide. So from Merriam-Webster, there's, there were three different definitions of honor, and I think they kind of build on what we're talking about. The first was to have a good name or public esteem. That's talking about your honor, right? Protecting your good name and your self-esteem. Next. A person of superior standing, right? That's the world's honor. I'm a, you know, I'm greater than everybody else. I'm famous. I'm rich. I'm, you know, happier than you. I'm everything better than you. Next. One whose worth brings respect. That's God's honor. Ones whose worth brings respect. We get our worth through God. Right? That's why it's God's respect. It's not the world's respect. Our worth comes from God and Him alone. You might think to yourself, but I am not smart. I am not attractive. I'm not skinny. I'm not popular. I'm not young. I'm not, you know, all of these things are not something, right? Everybody is not something. No matter how good or how attractive or how popular you think somebody is, there's something that they're not, right? And they know it. Because we're looking for our worth from ourselves um, rather than from God. Paul, I mean, we always use him as the best example, right? Paul had everything. He even said he had everything. He says, I was wealthy. I had all the knowledge. I had all the respect. I had all the authority. I had everything. Philippians 3.3. What is more, I consider everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things and I consider them garbage. Nothing that I may gain Christ. After everything that he had, everything he had worked for, everything that he had earned, he says, I'm, gonna, I, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. I find my sufficiency in Christ. And there are, uh, there are so many things that can attack our self-worth, our self-image. Um, my sister and I were uh, both adopted. And I praise God that I was. I mean, I was raised by a wonderful family. My mom and dad were fantastic. Um, my sister, though, always had a hard time with it. I, and I never could figure out why. She always wanted to 
know who her birth parents were. She always wanted to know who her birth mother was. And it, it really upset my mom. Um, that's just the way she was. But it just never felt right to my sister. And even to this day, and we're, I mean, she's 60 years old, and it still bothers her, right? Because she's missing worth, right? She's missing identity. And it can, it can be even worse. What if you find out, I mean, being ado- not being wanted and being adopted is one thing. Not being wanted and your mother trying to kill you is a whole other thing. Go ahead and play the video real quick. Talk about a bottle of self-worth. I mean, can you imagine the, the feelings that at 14 years old that she went through? Can you imagine the problems of self-worth her birth mother was having and having aborted a child? Even though she didn't know she was alive, she's still dealing with that pain. Just like this lady is dealing with her pain at being the target, right? Talk about an attack on self-worth. It just, but it doesn't matter. Right? It doesn't matter because she found her sufficiency in Jesus Christ. She could not find it anywhere else, right? She was, her mother tried to murder her. She tried to, re, she tried to deal with that, solve that with drugs and sex and everything else, right? All the other coping, maybe, shop, maybe other people react with shopping, maybe with violence, right? We all try and solve that feeling of inaccuracy somehow. And she found her adequacy through Jesus Christ. So, we need to um, work on restoring and maintaining and building brotherly love within the family of God. Right? It's easy to selfishly love a stranger. It really is. Right? You see a homeless person on the curb, you want to give them money, you bring them food, maybe it's your last five bucks, right? And you want to give them give it to them, right? Because they need it, and you know they need it. You want to help your neighbor. You've got to go um, get ready. You've got to go do some stuff to get ready for work the next day, get your kids ready, right? You've got cooking to do, and your neighbor needs help, right? And um, a single mother who's having a really hard time, and you go help her and sacrifice your time, right? It's, it's kind of easy to do that as opposed to loving someone like a brother and sister and making them part of your family. Um, John 1, 12 and 13 talks about this. He says, Yet to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. And so, as I talked about before, we are all one family in Jesus Christ and we cannot always pick our family but we are to serve our family, right? Just as much as we would a stranger on the street. We are to be there for our family, just as we would anybody else. And because we can't, as I said, pick our family, because we can't always choose, right? We've got to understand that love does not always agree. Would you agree with that, right? In your family, do you always agree? You love your family? Yeah, I'll assume. Right? Maybe you don't. I, we'll talk about that. We'll pray for you. Um, but you love your family, right? No matter what their issues are, their foibles, their right, personality problems, their 
attitudes, whatever the case may be, right? You love them. And we are a family, and families, while they don't always agree, they have to disagree in love, brotherly love, right? This is where we're talking about the transition to brotherly love. Ephesians 4.3 says, take every effort to keep the unity and spirit, um, unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, right? How many times in Paul's letter does he end or begin with, hey, these two people need to agree, or these people need to stop fighting, or these people need to agree, right? It, it's, it's human nature, right? We have our own opinions, and sometimes they're tied to our identity. Um, there is a joke um, meant to be kind of satirical in that more churches have split over the color of the carpet than over doctrine. And I, sad to say, it's kind of true, right? Um, no statistic to back that up, but it's human nature, right? We're in the middle of, uh, you know, God blessing us with remodeling because of a disaster that we had. Um, I'm sure there's opinions about what we're doing, what we're not doing. And hopefully they've been discussed and voiced and shared, and right? Because we want to, you know, we want to hear from everybody. The, the renovation committee wants to hear from everybody. The elders want to hear from everybody, right? But we can't, we have to come to a decision, right? Based on what we think the consensus of, of the opinion is. And that's not always easy, right? And not always, not everybody's always going to agree. Now, the good thing is I've not heard any significant disagreement. I mean, in the sense that if you don't do this or else, right? Um, and that's, that's a blessing, right? That nobody has taken that, taken that stance and we, because we are a family, right? And so many people here today consider this place their home, their family, and they are willing to get along. But it's more than just sometimes disagreement. Um, sometimes it can turn into grudges, right? Even if we say, okay, I'm, I don't agree, but I'm going to continue on, right? I'm just going to be quiet. And it festers, right? And it becomes a grudge. Um, I, uh, I can hold a grudge, okay? I'm just, I confess right now. Um, not only can I hold it, I can embrace it, and I can love it, and I can just, and I can live with it for a long, long time, <laughs> you know? And um, I laugh about it, but I'm not, you know, I'm not proud of it, but it is one of my weaknesses is when, you know, it's hard to kind of get, un it's hard to get under my skin, but once you do, it's kind of hard to get you out. Um, nobody hears, no grudges here, I promise, okay? Um, but do you recall, right, with your brothers and sisters, your neighbors, your friends, your family, when you see them or you spend time with them, do you recall past hurts? Do you recall wrongs done to you? Remember the things that were said that maybe hurt your feelings or you didn't agree with? That's a grudge. right? Even if you feel like you're loving this person the way you ought to be, when you see them or you encounter them, what you think about is hurt that they've done to you or disagreements that they've had with you. That is a grudge. And that cannot live in the family of God that will only divide right, the family of God. Love. Um, I'm going to close with this. 
it seems like Paul talks a lot about love in his letters. Um, I don't know statistically if it's the most popular topic in Scripture, but it seems like it. It's very high up there, if not the top subject that he talks about. In 1 Corinthians 13.4, he says, Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no right of wrong, love is not delight, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Wow. I mean, that's a tall order, folks. It is. It just, I, I read that, and it's just, how do I live up to that, right? You do it one person, one encounter at a time, right? You don't do it, just turn it all on. I'm going to turn on all my love, and I'm never going to keep a record of wrong. I'm never going to delight in evil. I'm never going to rejoice, right? I'm, I'm always going to rejoice in truth. You know, we, not, we don't always do anything, right? Except being consistent. And so love is grown and is, and is nurtured one encounter, one person at a time, right? Whoever comes up to you next, you love that person right in that moment. You're honest, you're true with them. You love them sincerely as a brother or sister in Christ. And then the next encounter, you love them. Right? One person, one encounter of a to- at a time. <clears throat> it's true that love is risky. And um, love is, true love is threatening. True love is risky. True love is threatening. It can put us in a very vulnerable place. Um, true love is trusting people with the joys and pains um, in your life. Right? Sharing your life with other people. What happens when a brother or sister betrays us, when we've been hurt, when, we, when that bond is broken down? Are we then no longer allowed to love? Are we given permission not to love? 2 Corinthians 6, 11-13 says, We have spoken to you, Christians, and opened wide our hearts to you. Our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak to you as my children. Open your wide your hearts also. We are, um, I mean, we're human. That's all we can do, right? One thing at a time. We're never going to do it perfectly, um, but we're going to do it honestly. If you have some issues with loving others, with carrying grudges, with giving of yourself in that way, in a, in a selfless, brotherly way, as Paul describes, right? We want to pray with you. And that's my invitation this morning, is I want you to um, come up here and pray with us. There'll be an elder up here with me. The prayer room is open again. Praise God. You can go back to the prayer room and pray. grab somebody and go pray. Right? Go by yourself and pray. Nate will be out here as soon as I'm done. Um, Pray with him. There's a lot of people here that are willing to open up their hearts to you. And sincerely, right? There's a sincere amount of love in this place. And we need people to share it with, right? We've got to open ourselves. We've got to open our lives. 
and we've got to be willing to risk, risk loving one another because God's commanded it to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you um, for your word. I thank you for your love, just your selfless, genuine, authentic love for us that while we cannot find enough in our own lives to make us worthwhile, to make to fill all the gaps, you do that, right? You fill all the needs. You fill everything. You fulfill everything that we are and everything we should be. And I'm just, I'm so thankful, Father, because my, my efforts to find myself worth has failed. My efforts to be um, more have failed. But in you... I am everything and I cannot fail because I am in you. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.